My task is to talk to you about messy grace in family life and in marriages. And what I want to do today is expand that just a little bit to talk about messy grace in church life, in your relationships with other people as well. And as I constructed my message for you today, I thought of all the things that I could say, what do I think would be valuable for you? And so, I have decided that I want to share with you what I have learned at the throne of grace, working with a messy creation. And how do we stay in, day in and day out, with people and families and relationships that can be painful for us? And so what I'd like to do is start out by having you think about one of the most threatening environments that you can imagine or that you have been in. Just want you to get a sense about it. It might be something in a family, it might be something politically, it might be something in a country, or like me, it may be a certain kind of institution. Years ago, I had an opportunity to go to Jefferson City Correctional Facility in order to work with prisoners. And one of my favorite places to go was in the protective custody unit. Deb Hafer would lead a group there, and these men were allowed out of their cells one day, one hour a day in order to walk in the yard, or they were allowed out more to come to our sessions. That was really exciting. And when they would file into these special sessions, the guard would lock the door and leave us. It was really exciting. These were the worst of the worst of the worst. And we would minister to them. And in this very threatening, dismal environment, with the worst of the worst in the state of Missouri, there was the kingdom represented. And there was one man in particular that I was really kind of drawn to. He was a man whose eyes to dance, who was really involved and interested in everything that we would say. When we would sing, he would raise his hand and put his hand on his heart. And so I had an opportunity to talk to him and I would say, tell me about your story. And what he said to me was something that has revolutionized my experience with the Lord and with our culture. He said, God is greater than the culture of this prison. And I live in the greatness of God's goodness. That's where I want to take you today. God is greater than the culture in which you live in. He is greater than our culture, yet so often we feel trapped by our own culture in which we live in. And today, I want to take you to why we feel trapped. And then I want to take you to three action steps that you can do in order to move beyond it. A culture is comprised of the rules and regulations, the unspoken expectations, the routines, and the guiding principles of a group of people. And we all live within our own environments that have those particular elements, as well as within society as a whole. And today, I really want for us to think about how we can respond to people in our churches and families who are manipulative, angry, passive-aggressive, defensive, contemptuous, threatening, lying, two-faced, or seethingly silent. And they create a culture that drags us down and a culture that harms us. So let me start with the dominant thought 
that I've already said to you. God is greater than the culture in which you live and will direct you in ways to transform it. So transforming a culture means that you and I have to change our priority from protecting ourselves to living out the gospel message of the death and the resurrection of Jesus. Jesus tells us that we have to die to ourselves in order to really be his disciples. And that through dying to our self-interests, our own self-understandings, our own personality style, and our own priorities, we will find life. The dichotomy of dying to self to find life is what I want for us to explore today. In order to see the wisdom that God has put in the dying to self and the being alive to God process, we have to contend with living in a broken world. So I want to use some contemporary terms with some sensitivity today. Working in the area of psychology, I don't like to push on scripture elements that aren't there. But here's what I'd like for you to consider, is that we experience dysfunctional relationships in a world that doesn't work in correct ways. The term dysfunctional that I want to use today means that we act in ways that does not reflect God's love and do not embody the truth of the greatest commandments that we heard Dr. Welch talk to us about, about loving God and loving people. Jesus knew that we could act this way. So in Luke chapter 11, verses 11 through 13, he says that a good father would not give a son a snake if he asked for a fish or a scorpion if he asked for an egg. You'd agree with me and agree with Jesus that a good father doesn't do that. But we don't live in a good place. People will give you scorpions. People will give you snakes. People who love us and care about us. And I want to ask us, what do we do when we're handed a scorpion or we're handed a snake? The Bible records the origin of dysfunctionality in Genesis 3. In the narrative of the fall, God records three of these dysfunctional responses that happen immediately when Adam and Eve sin. These three problems continue to form the foundation of everything that you and I have to deal with. The first problem is shame. Genesis chapter 3, verse 7. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized that they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. One of the most famous contemporary scholars on shame, Gershom Kaufman, states that shame is the most disturbing experiences that individuals ever have about themselves. To... No other emotion feels more deeply disturbing because in the moment of shame, the self feels wounded from within. Now, I know that some of you feel shame today. And it's not my intention to pick on shame. What I want you to know is that we're going to be talking about how Jesus eradicates that shame. But shame includes feelings and thoughts about that were somehow wrong, that were defective, that were inadequate, that were not good enough, or that were not strong enough. And that Adam and Eve felt shame in their nakedness, and this wound was deeply felt inside of them. There was something wrong or defective about them. The second problem that we encounter in the narrative of the fall is fear. Genesis 3.8 tells us that they, Adam and Eve, heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. The man and the wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees in the garden. Fear is an emotional response that is induced by a perceived threat. This threat causes a change in your brain as well as in your behavior. Fear can lead you to hide, to run, to freeze. 
Fear may arise from a confrontation or from avoiding a threat. It may come in the form of a discovery. So, for the first time, created history, Adam and Eve discovered that God was a threat to them. The great lover of their souls somehow needed to be feared. Have you ever felt afraid of God? Have you ever felt that kind of fear about his presence? That he would reject you. That he would not love you. He would not embrace you. Instead of running to him, they ran away from him. And you know what? We're still running, aren't we? The third and last problem comes from the narrative of the fall is guilt. In Genesis 3, 11 through 19, guilt is a natural byproduct of sinning. One outgrowth of guilt is blame. Adam blamed Eve and Eve blamed the serpent. And then the consequences of their sin are laid out for everybody to see. Guilt is complex and it comes in many forms. In this passage, it was a negative experience to doing something wrong. We know that certain responses are wrong, but we live in a world that's flipped them to where wrong has become right. And we live in that world where things don't work the right way. Isaiah laments, woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who substitute darkness for light and light for darkness who substitute bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter you see shame fear and guilt change our values so that wrong becomes right in our eyes so the effects of shame fear and guilt in our lives forces an exchange of god's way of life for satan's way of death He exchanges truth for lies and function for dysfunction. We readily see this truth in the lives around us. Shame, fear, and guilt also produce some other negative results. They produce three extremely harmful relationship rules. These rules are don't trust, don't feel, and don't tell. Each of these rules functions as a means to protect the devastated self. The reasoning goes something like this. If I don't trust, I won't get hurt. If I don't feel, I can manage the hurt. And if I don't tell, I won't be shamed anymore. The problem is that these three rules only magnify the problem over time and become more and more deadly. So, before we look at somebody else, we have to admit that these three rules, as well as shame, fear, and guilt, exist in us as well. You see, we live in a world that doesn't function the right way. And there are times that we don't function the right way. And so in this sense, we are all at the throne of grace together. And I invite you to join me there to learn some of the things that I have learned along the way. Even an organization can have these three problems in it. And Ozark is no different than any other organization. And so we have to avail ourselves of the work of God in our lives to keep transforming the culture in which we live. So as we embrace God's way of life, we are confronted with our own lack of faith and we must correctly answer the question my prisoner friend asked. Is God greater than shame, fear, and guilt in this world? Brothers and sisters, we nod our head yes and then we live like the answer is no. Today, I want to give you some steps so that when you say yes, you have something to do To embrace what God has for you. So, the cross stands out as God's testimony to end shame, fear, and guilt. And here is how he did it. For shame, God was crucified naked. 
Isn't that interesting that Adam and Eve were naked? And when the, when the clothes of Jesus were removed from him, it was likely that he was naked, although it is not recorded in scripture. And I like to think of him as naked. And secondly, what I'd like for you to think about with shame is that some scholars believe that maybe Jesus wasn't crucified up so high and away from everybody, but there was a form of crucifixion that you could be six inches off the ground. And again, because I want to bring you into things that I have learned, in order for me to embrace the fact that God has taken care of my shame, I need to put him in the most shameful position possible on the cross. And that is bruised and broken and tormented and bleeding and face to face naked. It's a whole different way of looking at it where people can walk right up to him and talk to him spit on him and ridicule him he bore our shame our shame and when you feel shamed the image I want you to see is Christ bearing your shame that you can put it down and give it to him secondly perfect love casts out fear We will no longer be rejected by God and his perfect love on the cross. No greater love has this than one who will die for his friends. Is that Adam and Eve were afraid of God and thought that God wouldn't love them anymore. But the cross displays God's great love for us. John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave. You see, the cross represents his love too, which combats Fear. Instead of running away from God when we're in trouble, we are to run to God when we are in trouble because God has paved the way for us to be able to move toward him. And the last one is that God has taken care of guilt by forgiving our sins with the sacrifice of Jesus once and for all. We are forgiven. Romans chapter 5, 12 through 21 tells us that it's Jesus who removed all of this sin that Adam brought into the world. And he functions as our second Adam, our renewed person. And he stands as our model about the way that we should live our life and what we should do in our relationship with God. So, I'm kind of a simple person with complicated ideas. So let me take you down the road that Jesus has paved for us. To deal with the difficulties that we face in ourselves, but also in our relationships. Paul focuses us on the imperative of emptying ourselves, just as Jesus did. And he talks about it in Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 8. If it was a part of God's plan for Jesus to empty himself, and it's mentioned for us that we are to die to ourselves and take up our cross daily and empty ourselves, then emptying, in my estimation, becomes our number one priority. So, let's take a look at this. If we are to live the crucified life of love, if we are to be that person that helps somebody else deal with their shame, deal with their fear, deal with their guilt, because you're going to be a living embodiment of that in the world around you, one of the very first things that you must do is empty yourself. Philippians chapter 2, 5 through 8 says this, Have this attitude in yourselves. It was also in Christ Jesus, who although he existed in the form of God, he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. But emptying himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of man, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. 
You see, dying to ourselves and taking up our own cross becomes the central action that spurs the work of God in on our lives. By emptying ourselves of ourselves, we exchange our ways for Christ's ways. We exchange earthly lifestyle models for the model of life that God gives to us. And we exchange our culture of shame, fear, and guilt for his culture of abundant life. So, let me give you some ways that you can empty yourself. And I just want you to listen to this and then download the sermon. First thing is you have to recognize your own need to come to Jesus in humility. James 4, 6 says that God opposes the prideful, but he gives grace to the humble. The world's too big. Shame is too big. Guilt is too big. Fear is too big. God has called you to a ministry that's too big, and he knows it. And so you must recognize your need for him. Secondly, you have to turn away from your own way and embrace his way. I know you're all smart. You're at Ozark Christian College. And then those of you that are Upperclassmen, you're even smarter yet. My greatest fear is that we'll be prideful. Because what we have to do is lay everything down that God can help us pick up what we need to help somebody else. If you already have the answers, nobody wants to talk to you. If you don't care about people and can't make that connection, they don't care what you have to say to them. What they want to know is that you care for them. So any thought or action that's contrary to Christ's way must go from your life. You have to find the action steps for what this path requires. And you'll probably need to get some help to do it. You're going to need a mentor or a counselor to help you to move forward because you have your own blind spots and you make up your own excuses for why it's okay for you to act in unchristlike ways. The third thing is that you have to mentally rehearse God's way. This is called meditation. You have to talk about them. You have to think about them. You have to put them in your mind over and over and over and over. And eventually you'll memorize them. Fourth thing is that you have to start acting on the truth in every circumstance. The fifth is you have to give yourself plenty of time. Research indicates that you need time. One researcher said you need 63 days of doing the same thing over and over again in order for the mind of Christ to really be able to transform you in a more permanent way. And then you repeat steps one through five every day. And you don't stop. Because the day you stop is the day you fall. You see, brothers and sisters, here's what God has done. is He's investing in you. And then he's sending you out into a world filled with shame, filled with fear, and filled with guilt. And he's saying, I'm going to equip you. But in order to equip you, you've got to get over yourself first. I know that, that you're magnificently created. I know that you have gifts and talents. But you have to get over your own pridefulness. Not only must you empty yourself, but you also must fill up yourself at the same time. So, again, because I'm a simple-minded man, and I live a really fast life, and I'm saying, Lord, I know stuff, I know how to be helpful, but I don't know how to put it together for that person. And I know that I've got useful information and experiences, but I don't know what would be valuable for that person. That's the emptying. I I have something to offer. I just don't know how to package it. The very first step that you have to do is pray without ceasing. 1 Thessalonians 5.17 Now that you have ongoing fellowship with the Creator, you have to talk to Him first. You see, when you are done with shame, when you're done with fear, and when you're done with guilt, what you have left is God. Sounds like a pretty good deal to me. But you have to maintain that with God. You are not designed to be out of fellowship with God. He is always closer than our skin. But the problem is, is that we move away. And we must constantly interact with him. 
the byproducts of doing this, having a close relationship with God and talking with him throughout the day, is that you will have more productive emotional responses. You'll have more trust and you'll have more courage to talk about him and about the things that are going on in your own life. These three aspects of trusting, feeling, and talking will be encased in his love for you, where you can grow and flourish. The second thing that you need to have is good works. So you empty yourself, you pray throughout your entire day, and then you go out and you serve people. What you might not know is that service is a way that God has designed you to be able to have a transformed life. When you help somebody else, something really good happens to you. This is now confirmed in brain research. God knew what he was doing a long time ago when he said in Ephesians chapter 2 verse 10 that you are created for good works. And in Acts chapter 4 verse 12 that we are to do acts of service. He put it in our DNA and he said now go out and serve. Go out and do something. When you don't know what to do, do something really good. So let me give it to you. Be a friend. When you don't know what else to do, somebody has just murderated your character. Your spouse is so ticked at you. Your spouse doesn't ever want to see you until your spouse wants to see you. Somebody in the church gets really angry because you said something and they took it all the wrong way. Being a friend is really what it's about. And so I want you to think about Jesus hanging on a cross. Those of you in class, I apologize. You've heard this part before. And I want you to imagine Jesus with one arm hanging out saying, don't you want to be friends? Don't you want to be friends? That's our life. We are hurt, we are wounded, we have no shame, we have no fear, and we have no guilt. We fearlessly say, don't you want to be friends? Now, I know that there's all kinds of issues with this that I can't get into. I only have a little bit of time today. And I hope you have more questions. But here's the key. To repair a relationship, it is up to the wounded person to repair it. It is not up to the wounder to repair it. So as an elder at Christ Church of Ornogo, somebody comes up to me and assassinates the church, my character, or somebody else. It is up to me to become friends again with that person and not to hold the offense. Because they're obviously in trouble, wouldn't you say? We're not supposed to assassinate each other's characters. We're not supposed to attack each other. But when that happens, it is up to me to extend the hand of friendship back to that person. And over and over again, this is what you see Jesus doing. I have to get over myself. In order to get Jesus on me. And I have to ask him to help me. How do I extend this hand? And maybe all I do is sit with somebody. Or maybe all I do is offer them a word of encouragement. I do something for them. But it's up to me. To ask them. Don't you want to be friends? You overcome evil with good. In Romans chapter 12 verse 20. Best way I know how to do that is to be friends. So. Here's your dominant thought again. God is greater than the culture in which you live because he takes care of those problems and he helps for you to transform it and directs you in certain ways. So you will be able to do this only if you have the strength and the wisdom and the ability to interact with them through the power of God. You cannot do it on your own. Here are some practical steps that I want for you to take on implementing the greater culture of God as we land the plane on some very practical things you can do. When we work with dysfunctional people in our lives, I'm assuming now that you are better. 
Here are three healthy roles that you can take to assist them. The first one is to be a sustainer. You will support them to be as Christ-like as possible. And you want to give them what they need on their faith journey. You want to listen and encourage them. You want to serve them no matter what. And in your loving service, they will open up their heart's door to you. The second thing is that you can be a minor can be a minor. You can extract the precious from the worthless of their lives. This was Jeremiah's ministry in Jeremiah fifteen nineteen. Is that you highlight what they're already doing well and help them to leave what they're not doing well. So you're a, stainer, a sustainer and a minor. And the third thing is you're a catalyst. You spur them on to love and good deeds. In Hebrews chapter 10 verse 24. There's an active pursuit of Jesus. And you ask, how can I help you? To move forward and do better. So some final thoughts for you. On how God is greater than the culture in which you live in. Remember where you live. You live in a broken world and a broken culture. You live in a world filled with shame, fear and guilt. That interacts with the ways of God. That forces God in the margins. And you want to have acceptance, love and forgiveness for people. You become the hands and the feet of Jesus. They attack you. But you offer them friendship. This is what reconciliation is in 2 Corinthians 5. You need to remember who you serve. You serve the God who's greater than anything in this created world. He knows how it works. And when he tells you that emptying yourself, praying without ceasing and serving will work to impact the culture, it will. Jesus tells you that you will have trouble. But as you empty, pray and serve, take heart. He has overcome the world. John sixteen thirty three. Walk in humility and forgiveness. God's humble servant never draws attention to himself or herself. It's not about how smart you are, how much education you have, how much experience you have, how youthful you are. But you use everything you have and you hand it to Christ in the emptying process and say, put it together in a way that's usable today. Pick up the phone. Somebody's on the other end. Lord, what does this person need? Get out of the way. Ask the Lord to direct you. In order to determine if you're walking in humility and forgiveness, you want to ask those around you how you are doing and whether or not your attitude reflects the behavior and the love of Jesus. God will give you what you need as you walk in humility and forgiveness. James chapter 4 verse 6. So... Take our prisoner brother's experience to heart. God is greater than the culture in which you live. And he wants you to partner with him to change it. If you have stopped being like Jesus, then start again. Start again. If you are changing to be like him, then ask the Holy Spirit to show you what you need to do next. Because your church... Your family, your marriage, and if you have children, your children are counting on you to lead the way to the throne of grace. You're dismissed.